Welcome to episode 182 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and this is the podcast of Brotherly Love. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. Have you noticed that my intros have become like a little bit more jubilant and excited? I have noticed that a little bit. So the reason is because I went back and for no good reason, listened to some of the previous episodes and thought, wow, I just sound really, really bored. <laughs> <laughs> you did mention that before. Yeah, I know. So I'm, I'm coming back with this hard now. I'm like doubling down on it. So that's not an affirmation or denial. It's just a straight. That's for free of charge. Yeah, you have to you have to do kind of like Mickey Mouse Club style where like you really like high school musical style. You really got to get into it. You have to feel I, like you're going over the top for it to feel like you're at the top. I love that you referenced High School Musical. I know nothing about that except that it's like its own phenomenon, apparently. Yeah, I, I also know nothing about it. I've not seen it. I just know that it's like over the top, like jubilant. <laughs> Most of the That's time. the kind of podcast we are. So this is like totally unscripted as everything that we do is, but you just brought to my mind something that I think I should share. And that is, so I work for an organization that actually has a mascot. Really? And I know the gentleman that often plays the part of the mascot. And here's the hilarious thing. If you're in a mascot suit, like everything has to be like exaggerated, like you're saying to really emphasize that you're like acting or you're showing emotions stuff like that. But the strange thing about it is I have this conviction, knowing him and seeing how he operates, that I think mascot people are the strangest and most wonderful of all people because this guy who plays our mascot is like super chill. He's absolutely introverted, but you put him in this suit and it's like a totally different person shows up. Like it's like out of control almost. Yeah. It's like way over the top, like totally different. I feel the same way that like most clowns are probably the same way. I had a I had a friend in college who like did some clowning, like some clown work as like a side job. And oh, this is uh, great. he he was kind of the same way. Like he was super introverted, super quiet. I think it's probably like those people that want to be really extroverted, but aren't quite sure how to cross that line. So they put on like a mask and then they can do it. Wait, but like when you're clowning, I love that we're just we're going in like hard on this. Like we understand the clowning culture but when you're participating in that it's not like a full you're not like masking your entire personality right like that's most like makeup and stuff right yeah but it's makeup but like you're taking on a persona it's just like people who like people who like would never you never would do certain things in real life but if you're like in a play like you you can do things as a character that you might not ever be able to do as a person like, did he have a clown name? And if so, what was it? I don't, I don't remember. He, he Bojangles. Bojangles. Yeah. <laughs> what's the, uh, what's the clown on modern family? What's his name? I don't remember. I have no idea. This is a great podcast. Speaking of things we know nothing about. Yeah. Th- that's really our jam though. So I, I feel like we're in our lane and I'm totally fine sticking with it. Yeah. I hear you, man. Why don't we, uh, why don't we do some affirmations and denials? Why don't you go first this week? Okay. So I'm, uh, this is, I feel like I'm going to be a Debbie Downer here and I'm starting with the affirmation. I'm not like a big game guy and I, like game in the sense of like getting together with people and playing games. Yeah. How do you feel about games? So if you have a free evening, yeah, see that's, I can see you and I feel like you and I are in the same. Yeah. If you have a free evening and you're like, let's get together. How do you feel about filling that time with games? 
I'm not a big fan of like gaming, like tabletop games. Like yes. it's just I don't know. It, it's just not it's not my jam. What is it about the game that you're like? That's really not my thing. I don't I don't dislike games. It's not like if someone was like if we were at dinner at a friend's they're like let's play Parcheesi. Although I've never played Parcheesi, but like if they were like let's play Settlers of Catan, I, I wouldn't be like I hate games. I'm not you know like. <laughs> You and I both know somebody that will do just about anything to get out of a, of a family game night that yes, may yeah. or may not be one of our brothers um, and definitely is, in fact. But, uh, you know, I'm not that like I don't I don't try to get out of games, but it's just not my favorite thing to do. I'd much rather like sit around and have like intellectually stimulating conversation or something like that. OK, this is good because that's basically exactly how I feel about games. And there's something you said there that draws me to one particular game and only one game. And I don't know why this is, but being that many of us are in quarantine and trying to decide how to you know, spend a little bit of our time that we find now that's extra in our lap. I'm going to affirm a particular game that I do really love. I'm not necessarily particularly good at it, but I do really love it. And so I'm affirming a website, chess.com, which I think has both the absolute best website and also the absolute best app for chess. And this is a game that on their app, you can download for free. You can play with other people. You can play with against the computer. Also, I love it because it allows you to do puzzles and to actually do a little bit of training. So if you felt like chess is a game, like it's just weirdos and like grandmasters and computers playing, this is a great app to download. So I'd like to get more people into the game, but this is really like the only game I can get excited about. I don't know why. Yeah. And I realize it's a little bit nerdy, but I think the game of chess might be the most perfect game ever created ever. It's possible. You know who really, really loves chess? I think he plays on chess.com is uh, Nick Weisel from Reform Pilgrims. <laughs> he I love l- that we just went in totally different opposite directions. <laughs> I didn't even hear what you said. I said Shy Lin. I'm pretty sure Shy Lin, the rapper, Maybe, plays I guess. on chess.com. Yeah, he, he loves chess. He's constantly posting like really? pictures of his chess match and stuff like that. He he's a big fan of chess. Uh, you know, I I'm I don't love games that require a lot of like foresight. Like I don't like having to plan and strategize many moves in advance. I much rather I much prefer games where like I can look at what's going on right now and and take an appropriate action in the moment. I'm not so great at like trying to anticipate or force people to make certain moves. I'm just it's not my jam. I think people might find that surprising about you because you know, like games of so games of chance. How do you feel about games of chance? Eh, and whatever. I mean, yeah, so that- at the end of the day, most games are involve some level of chance, but like I'm not the kind of guy that would just like let's just roll dice and see who has a higher number. Like there's a lot of game like <laughs> Yahtzee boils down to let's let's just roll dice. And I mean, there's a little bit of strategy of like which dice you keep and which ones you roll. And but like it's the same as poker. Like, let's see who happens to get a random sampling of better cards than the other person. Like, well, whatever. So I like a little bit of strategy. I like I like when you have to look at a situation and make a good decision based on the situation. And, and I, I can deal with games where like I might have to think one or two moves ahead. Like, I have to plan a little bit. But chess, the the reason I'm not very good at chess is because a lot of times you have to think, like, five or ten moves in advance. And you have to be able to sort of see all of the different possibilities that your opponent's going to take. And I'm just just not patient like that with that kind of game. Man, all the Yahtzee lovers are going to come at us hard. (laughs) Are, are Are there Yahtzee lovers? Is that a thing? 
Oh yeah. My, like my wife loves Yahtzee. Like given the opportunity, like I'm surprised that she hasn't heard me say it with an earshot and is not here <laughs> right now rolling the dice. So it, people love Yahtzee. I actually have an electronic version of Yahtzee. I'm, I'm not going to lie. Cause I was trying to get better at it so I could beat her. And it's almost nearly impossible. But anyway, that's beside the point. I'm, I'm definitely affirming with a chess.com and their kind of iteration and organization of the game. It's really great. And if you felt like, Oh my word, this is a game that I just can't get into. It's too hard. It's too complicated. Try the site out, try the app, go hang out with Shy Lin, who I'm pretty sure is like unapologetically a lover of chess and plays there as well, or come find me and we'll hang out and play a little bit. But it's a great way. What I love about the game is it's a great way to play a game, but also it's amazing for just like intellectual, mental, logistical development. It yeah. really is like a lot of practice for a lot of things. So it's a fun way to do all that stuff. So how about you? What do you got? So I'm affirming um, a book that was sent to me. This is like the All Reform Pilgrims podcast today. Um, sent to me by Jordan Embry, also of the Reform Pilgrims, um, called The Mystery of Christ, His Covenant, and His Kingdom. And okay. it is uh, written by Samuel Renahan, uh, published by Founders Ministry. Um, you know, this is a good, handy little book that gives you a good basic uh, constructive overview of uh, the 1689 Federalist position. So it's not polemic. His goal is not to uh, defend the position or to argue against other positions. Uh, it's simply constructive and descriptive. So I found that it was very helpful in understanding some of the broad contours. Um, the other book that I had recommended before was The Distinctives of Baptist Federal Theology. Um, or Baptist Covenant Theology by Denault Pascal. Um, both books are similar in length, but this one I think has um, a little bit of a better treatment of it, and it's a little bit more cohesive. So check it out. It's uh, The Mystery of Christ, His Covenant, and His Kingdom by Samuel Renahan. Beautiful. That sounds super interesting. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's it's a good book. I mean, it was a good read. It's, it's about 200 pages long, so it's a good popular level treatment. Um, he uses footnotes rather than endnotes, which is always nice because then you don't have to try to hunt things down in the back. Um, so, yeah, it's just a good basic treatment of the subject. Can we just eliminate footnotes? Like, can we all as a culture, as a people, as a human race, come to the agreement that footnotes are just suboptimal? Wait, you mean endnotes, right? I mean, endnotes. Sorry. I was, I was about to end the podcast forever. <laughs> forever. I don't know if I can get past that done. if you said if you said we have to get rid of footnotes and keep endnotes. Endnotes no, totally are the worst. In, yeah, endnotes are the worst invention ever. I don't understand why anyone would ever want to do that. But endnotes foot, are trying are to be footnotes, but they're try they're uppity. They're trying to communicate something about themselves. Yeah, and I don't like it. I just don't like it. Endnotes are like, yeah, we're too good to interrupt the flow of the argument. Footnotes are like, yeah, we're important enough for you to take a second and step away from the argument uh, to look at us and then go back. But that's that's what's strange is if you're going to drop a superscript number in the middle of text, you're obviously drawing attention to the fact that there's more information that will help flesh out what's being said. Why you would say, I'm going to make you go find that? Because isn't it like the same temptation? Isn't it like the same like plea and the same bait? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, I don't know. And notes are from the devil. I had a professor in... <laughs> <laughs> the beauty of text messaging. <laughs> oh my that, word. You couldn't quite hear it. That was that was uh Jesse's wife answering the summons to Yahtzee, apparently. Great. Thanks for doing that. That no scared problem. the heck out of me. I'm not gonna lie to you. <laughs> Mission accomplished. Cause I was literally like I was making a point 
in that affirmation of she loves it. And if she could hear it, she'd make reference of it all the time, knowing that she's listening to her own podcast, which is not us downstairs. So the fact that she just dropped in here, like I'm super sweaty right now. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Anyway, I don't even remember what we were talking about. Footnotes. Footnotes are great. People use footnotes. Don't use endnotes. If your college professor tells you to use endnotes, tell them no. And tell them I said so and give them my email address. If your professor is saying you need to use EndNotes, that woman or man definitely probably one would like to already owns a yacht, has boat shoes, owns a smoking jacket. Tell them to stop. It's just not necessary. Yeah. And then drop the class and go do something productive. (laughs) Drop the class and the major, perhaps. Find something better. It's true. I don't even remember how we got talking about that. Are we on, we're on your, we're doing your denial now, right? Yeah. You're on denials. What are you denying, Jesse? Yeah. Okay. So again, like, I feel like a little bit, my denial is kind of underperforming yours these days, but I'm kind of, I guess I'm denying against having to break the law. So I, well, actually that is a real thing and I would prefer to die against breaking the law. So our car inspection, one of the vehicles that we own, that's, it's a 2005 Elantra. I love this vehicle because it's like a, it's a go-kart. It's great in the snow. I would drive it through anything. (laughs) I'm not worried about this vehicle at all, but it needs to be inspected. And likely it's going to need something because it's a go-kart and I drive it like that. It's true. Yeah. It's amazing. Uh, But because of the world in which we live in right now, you know, everything is closed, including lots of like service departments for vehicles. So I can't, I literally can't get it inspected. So I was just driving it around this morning and I'm in, we're in April now and it was due in March, and I'm just straight up breaking that law. Yeah, I th- I think a lot of states have suspended some of those kinds of things, though. So you might be okay. I think so. Like, I understand there's extending circumstances. Like, if I get pulled over, presuming I actually did, I would just be like, hey, there's this thing, COVID-19. Yeah. So my inspection is overdue. Just but when they I- walk up to the window, start coughing really forcefully. <laughs> And then, and then like, and then like when you turn in, be like, how can I help? (laughs) How can I help you officer? Wow. And they'll be like, nothing. Everything's fine. Everything's good. (laughs) I'm totally safe. Yeah. Part of, I guess the reason I was thinking about this this morning is last year, for whatever reason, my wife and I, we just lost our minds and we let the inspection lapse through just total neglect. We didn't even think about it. And what made me laugh is she was on her way somewhere. Actually, she was running some errands and she went into the library and she got pulled over in the library parking lot by a <laughs> cop. Nice. And the cop was like, do you know why I'm pulling you over? And she was like, I honestly have no idea. And he said, your inspection is overdue. I can see the sticker. And I guess like she was so much like, oh, I have no idea. Like just so like flabbergasted that he was like, Oh, it's okay. Like, clearly you actually didn't know. (laughs) So you just need to go and get that done. So we're like off cycle anyway, and now it's messed everything up. So it's it's funny, like every state does it a little bit different. So it's just, I just kind of feel bad that it's out there. Like, I know that it needs to be inspected and I want to inspect it, but I can't. Yeah. I, on the other hand, once let my inspection go. Uh, I would love to say it was accidental, but I just didn't do it. I knew I should have, and I, I was aware, and I just didn't do it. And I got pulled over, and the cop actually said to me, uh, we've now put your plates in the system. If you get pulled over again, we're not going to let you drive the car away. So go get oh, it taken wow. care of now. I was like over a year past due. So well, I was not living I'm, in submission to my civil magistrates at that point. I am not that innocent either. When I first moved out of New Hampshire into Pennsylvania, 
people who have moved across state lines will appreciate the fact that most of the time, everybody's inspection stickers are a little bit different, not only with respect to like how they're actually put together, like their format and stuff, but where they're often put on the vehicle. Yeah. So in New, ha- is it New Hampshire, is it still true that it happens underneath your rear view mirror? That, that's what the no, sticker it's, it's in like the lower left corner, like right above the VIN now, like okay, just gotcha. like to the lower left corner of the windshield. Gotcha. So, so that's what it is for us too. And we actually have two stickers because one is inspection, one is emissions testing. That's a whole nother thing we don't need to get into, but I would love to deny against that too. <laughs> but at the time, the New Hampshire sticker was like right underneath your, your rear view mirror. And so when I moved here, it was almost like, no, it was like a foreign country to them. Like nobody knew what that was. Yeah. Nobody knew how to interpret it. Nobody knew what the color meant or even like the giant number on it. I yeah. guess they just were like, that's not ours. So we're not going to pay attention to it. So there was a period of time when I first moved here where I let it lapse and nobody pulled me over because they were just like, I'm just going to let that go because I don't even know yeah. who that is or where, what state it's coming from. Yeah. Yeah. Different states do it different ways. In Minnesota, you are encouraged not to carry your registration. Actually, they don't give you a specific registration card, like paperwork. They just what? register you and you don't carry it with you. It's you just have your, system? You have your title and you're not supposed to carry your title in your car with you. But if you need to prove that you're a registered driver with a registered vehicle, you present your title at like after the fact. In New Hampshire, they have like a specific registration paperwork that you're supposed to carry with you. So for the longest time, you know, when I would get pulled over in Massachusetts, the same way I get pulled over in Massachusetts when I was still a student. And I'd be like, yeah, I don't have a registration card. And they're like, what do you mean you don't have a registration card? I was like, they don't do registration cards in Minnesota. I don't know what to tell you, dude. And he's like, that can't be right. I was like, I, I don't know what to tell you, man. I've never had a registration card. I was like, I, I can show you my title if you want to follow me back to my dorm, but that's all I got. So, yeah. yeah. And then they were like, get on the ground right yeah. now. <laughs> then they tased me. It was terrible. <laughs> Don't tase me, bro. Don't tase right, me, bro. So, enough of my car related denials. What are you denying? So I am uh, denying a little book called The Mystery of Christ, His Covenant, and His Kingdom. <laughs> so I'm going to do, I'm going to try to do a more in-depth analysis of this book. So on the on the first case, like I'm a Presbyterian. This is a 1689 Federalist book. So of course, I'm going to have theological disagreements with it. Um, it is a good introduction to the subject. He, he more or less is consistent, but this is, I, we were talking about this before the show a little bit. And uh, Please forgive me all of my Baptist brothers and sisters, literal brothers uh, and sisters, and also spiritual brothers and sisters out there. Um, Proceed. I don't, I don't think you can treat this, the subject of covenant consistently and follow the scriptures consistently and come out with a Baptist framework. If I did, I'd be a Baptist. So all of that said, there are a number of like weird inconsistencies in this book. And, and this is, you know, this is a, a guy who's on top of his game. He's like the one of the leading voices in, in modern 1689 federalism. He did his doctoral work on, you know, um, English, particular Baptists, where all this stuff started. But there are a number of places in this book that he just straight out undercuts his own position. And what I found ironic, and we were talking about this, is when he does so, it's not because he's being uh, unscriptural. It's actually because he's sticking close to the language of the scriptures. And when he sticks close to the language of the scriptures, particularly on the subject of apostasy, he undercuts his own argument. And so um, just a little sample here, reading from page 202, He's talking about apostasy, and earlier in the page, he made a point that those who uh, outwardly join the visible church uh, are making a false claim to the promises of the covenant of the visible church. But then he goes on and says, their treachery is all too real. 
The apostate was not in covenant, but regarded as such. The apostate was not a member of the kingdom, but regarded as such. But the apostate is legally accountable and liable to the supreme king and lord of the covenant kingdom. Apostates are to be treated as true traitors of the kingdom by their violation of the covenant and their treason against the king. And so where, where that falls off the rails, and I, I think most of our listeners probably would hear it just based on the way I was emphasizing it, is that he defines someone who's in the covenant as someone who's truly in the covenant, a regenerate member of the covenant, right? He, he more or less denies this external administration category that uh, Presbyterians rely on to explain kind of why there are non, uh, non-regenerate members who are part of the church and in some sense actually in covenant with Christ. Um, he denies that category, but then he says they violate the covenant and he has to say that because that's what Hebrews says, right? The apostate tramples on the blood of the covenant, which sanctifies them. So not to just, not to discredit the book as a valuable resource to understand the position, but I have to deny against this book because it, it, it just doesn't make a compelling argument in my mind. So I'm going to do a little bit more in-depth analysis either on my blog, or maybe I'll start a YouTube channel or something. But pick up the book, take a look at it. My experience, I read this, I read Denault Pascal's book. Um, I read a little bit of Sam Renahan's uh, dissertation. Um, my experience has been that when I read a book explaining the 1689 position, it further confirms to me that the Presbyterian position on covenant theology is correct. So pick it up, take a look for yourself, compare it against the scriptures like we should with everything. But I'm denying against the argument in this book because I think that it falls apart at the end. Man, you just bridged both affirmation and denial at the same subject. I did. Very Sorry. impressive. Sorry, Jordan. You only have yourself to blame for sending me this book. I'm not sure what you expected. <laughs> if you thought it was going to convince me to become a Baptist, sorry. Nice try. Wow. You've been warned. Yes. Please send books anywhere. Any to Anytime you want to send me books, let me know. I'll take them. I'll read them. But yeah. So check it out. It's a good book. It's worth reading, but um, it's not super convincing in my mind. Yeah, we basically have an open policy on books. Like if yeah. for some reason somebody is like, I would love to send Tony and Jesse books, I don't think we will reject that option or offer ever. No, not at all. We will not. Yeah. Please. And many, many listeners have sent us wonderful things actually. And we appreciate always when we receive something in the mail from somebody. It's true. It's a glorious thing, especially works of the written subject. That is yes. always something that I love to partake in. So. Yes. Speaking of works of the written subject. Yes, here we go. Yeah, it's time for bookcast. Yeah, it is. I love actually that we're doing bookcast like twice in each month. Like I know. A, it's like a little bit more cadence, a little bit more nicer rhythm where I feel like we're getting in step. And this was yet another great chapter in reform preaching by Dr. Joel Beakey. Yeah. I'm not going to lie. I had to go to Google and look up how to pronounce this guy's name. So I think that I have it right. Okay, I want to hear it. His name is Theodorus Jacobus Frielhusen or Frielheisen. I, I found yes. two different pronunciations, but it's not Frelheisen, which is what I thought. It's not Frel. It's Frielhusen, isn't it? Yes, that's how I understand it. Like almost like free, like Frielhusen, like that. Yes, I think you got it right. And here's how, the only reason I know that is this name, believe it or not, was familiar to me. Do you know why? Uh, because you were studying Jonathan Edwards. <laughs> Sneak peek. Um, no, close. But apparently this name is kind of like the equivalent of the Kennedy name in politics in New Jersey. Did you know that? 
no, but that makes sense given our understanding of what happens in this chapter. Yes. So we're kind of bridging in a different way with this text with Dr. Beaky in that we're getting into some preachers that have a deeper connection to America or North America in particular. And so I know the name because I'd actually heard it from politicians in New Jersey. And I actually had to go and look it up. And apparently, yes, the descendants of Theodorus are, have created like somewhat of a political dynasty in New Jersey. And they're, they're all related to him. If you actually go back and look it up. Yeah. So this chapter is, uh, as you mentioned, is sort of the beginning of a turn from the uh, continent in Europe, European continental theology and British theology, to now he's starting to look at American preachers of the reform persuasion in various kinds. So uh, Frelhusen here is, um, he's a very interesting figure to me. And I think the funniest part that I really took away from this is that he accidentally ended up in America. (laughs) So (laughs) so he was was German and he learned to speak Dutch in order to go to the Netherlands and preach to the Dutch people, which already in itself is a little bit, a little bit strange to me. Like, I'm not sure why he needed to go to the Netherlands. There was plenty of good Dutch preachers in the Netherlands, but he ended up in the Netherlands teaching and preaching uh, Dutch congregations. And he was offered a post in uh, the rather, uh, what is it? Rarethens, which is actually Raritan, New Jersey. Right. Uh, but he thought that this was a place in the Netherlands. And so he accepted the post. And and this speaks to, I think, uh, the integrity and the seriousness that people took uh, truth and being a man of integrity, letting your yes be yes, you know, we know. After he found out that this was not indeed a post in a a small province in the Netherlands and was in fact a post in the colonies in uh, the New New England, uh, back when it was still colonial New England, he still felt as though he took the position, he accepted it, and so he should follow through on it. Now, I don't think there would have been anyone that would have said, oh, yeah, you're definitely not, you're definitely a liar when you thought that this was in the Netherlands. You're not going to go to the Americas. Um, you're definitely a liar. Everyone would have said, oh, yeah, it's unfortunate that you thought that this was a place here, but we understand that you maybe can't do this. But he felt so strongly, and he felt strongly at biblical grounds that he actually went to New uh, to New Jersey to fulfill his commitment, which he had taken. So he took up he took up four different pastorates in New England. And one of the things that is interesting about Dutch uh, early Dutch colonial preaching is that the the um, the Dutch churches, and you know, we're used to talking about presbyteries and sessions, but in in uh, continental reform theology, the rough equivalent to a, a presbytery, which is like a collection of of elders from a local uh, or like a region that get together to sort of do governance over that region, uh, ecclesiastical right. governance, it's called a classis. And so right. he was commissioned by the Amsterdam classis or classis Amsterdam, but those classes did not authorize ministerial training in New England, in the New World. So anyone who was going to come and be an authorized, ordained preacher in a Dutch congregation in the New World had to be trained in uh, in the Netherlands. So he went and he was a minister over four different congregations, which already speaks to how busy and uh, productive he had to be because, you know, I, I'm I'm sort of tangentially involved in the preaching ministry of one church in New England, and he had four different congregations that he was trying to handle. Right. He was an export. Yeah. And that was the only way that you were going to get kind of some kind of trained minister in that day and age, at least into the colonies. 
And it's funny you mentioned that because that's the thing that actually jumped out to me as well. It's almost laughable. Like it's, this is one of those situations where the truth is stranger than fiction that somebody said, here's the place where I want to offer you to go. And he was like, oh yeah, that's what next door. And they're like, no, it's not at all. But he'd already committed to it. Yeah. And Beaky sources as basically like his, the place of conviction of Psalm 15, four, which says those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change. So here's somebody that wasn't just like, well, I think I should follow on my word, but was associating what happened with the scriptures, like a particular passage of scripture and saying, I need to go to this place and how great and loving the superintending will of God that in this wonderful error, here comes this man to bring a legacy into the new colonies where the only ministers were being exported. There was no like organically grown sense of like reformed theology and he comes and he serves. Yeah. So he's like a really interesting, strange character. And I loved reading this chapter because it like just jumped out and I'd heard the name, but not really understood who he was. Yeah. And so I feel like at this juncture, I have to ask you because this is like the parallel I'm going to draw and have drawn in reading this and understanding him. How many diehard movies have you seen? Not any. (laughs) I've never seen a diehard movie all the way through. (laughs) I'm not sure where you're going with this, but I'm excited to see. I anticipated that going in a slightly different direction. (laughs) I'm not going to (laughs) lie. I have never seen a full diehard movie. Okay. So here's kind of the parallel I'm drawing. I feel like he's kind of like the John McClane of like early colonial preaching. Like, so Biggie's going to make this point, which I think we'll get into is that like, he was a hard man. Like he had a strong conviction to God. He was a little bit rogue, yeah, but not in a way that was disassociated or divorced from like this, what the scripture is taught, but he had a hard edge. Like he did it in a way that he felt was the conviction that God had laid upon him and his ministry to his people was one in which he came with like the full force of what he felt was the piety of life that they should exhibit. Yeah. And I, I think that that's something like for us to really evaluate like in our discussion here, but also like in assessing uh, there. So in other words, like there's something about just like the John McClane character, if you've seen the Die Hard movies where like you gravitate toward, you're like, yes, like get some. And I, and I felt myself going in that direction, but also there's this hard edge or where does it cross over where it's too much? Yeah. yeah and, and, and I think he's kind of that interesting character. Yeah. And you know, it bears saying too, and Beaky makes this point. It's not as though he just like was like, well, I said I would go, I better go in the decision-making process. I'm sure there was a period of time where he realized, Oh crap, they're talking about New Jersey and, and the Americas, not some Providence on the other side of the Netherlands, which is already pretty small. He also is influenced by somebody who said to him, you know, the, the Dutch, the Dutch Christians in America, they don't have strong preaching. They don't have, right. you know, they're very worldly people. So he, at that point, this guy wasn't saying there's a lot of unregenerate people, which, which we'll get into with this, with this figure. He was just saying they really need somebody who's going to teach them not only the, the knowledge of the scriptures, but what that means and what that should do in their life. And so he was convinced and convicted that he was to go to America for a very specific purpose. And that purpose was not to spread the gospel among those who've never heard it, right? He wasn't, he wasn't viewing himself as a missionary. And I I think sometimes people confuse the idea of missionaries when they're, they're preaching to up to people who claim to be Christians. That's not missionary work, right? That's, that's not, uh, that's not a missionary activity. That's that's the ministry of the gospel within the visible church when you're preaching right. to people who are 
uh, consider themselves to be Christian, but he, he saw himself as going to a people to a group of people identifying themselves. I didn't even realize this when I was doing the, the apostasy uh, denial there, but he he's, saw himself as going to people who were committed to the visible church, but many of them, if not most of them in his mind, had not yet experienced actual conversion, had not yet become regenerate. So he saw himself going and kind of preaching to visible Christians who were still on their way to hell, who had not found their way onto the narrow road that leads to life, but still were now people calling themselves Christians on the road to destruction. Right. And that's what's so interesting about him. Like, it's fascinating, right? Like, here's a man that's so committed to the Lord Jesus Christ that he feels he needs to bring this message consistently to his own congregation. Like yes. it's not like he's holding mass tent meetings, although he was part of the Genesis of the great awakening in Britain and America, but I'm just blown away actually by his commitment. And one of the things we should, I think we should mention that's like part hilarious to me and like part, like I, I so badly want to talk to this dude because yeah. I, one of the things I loved is that Beaky makes this kind of offhanded comments about really how controversial he was in his own time. And so yeah. he says that he was so severely criticized that he had this poem written on the back of his sleigh. And so before I quote the poem, which is very short, think about what it would take for you to post this like as a bumper sticker on your own vehicle. Like what kind of person you'd have to be and also what kind of influence you'd have where you felt like it was necessary for you to publicize this. So here's the poem. No one's tongue, no one's pen can make me other than I am. Speak slanderer. Speak without end in vain. All you, your slanderers send. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, I, I love that. It's pretty amazing. It, it's, it's kind of like those people that have like a bumper sticker on their car. That says only God can judge me. Like, it, like this is where you get the John McClane vibe from this guy. I, I know enough about diehard to know the personality type of John McClane where it's like, yeah. I'm going to do the right thing. And if you think it's the wrong thing, Right. Then then get out of my way. Like, I'm not going to hurt you unless you get in my way, but I will hurt you if you get in my way. And yes. I do have to ask this question since you brought Die Hard into this. How okay. how do we translate Yippie Ki Yaye into <laughs> Dutch? I'd like to find that out. <laughs> you know what's so funny is I was, this is why you're not the same person. I was just about to bring that up and yet at the same time provide another disclaimer that says, we do not condone like the language in that movie or like, <laughs> but the sentiment is right yes. there. Like what is the equivalent of Yippie Kaye? Because I honestly feel like that's what that poem represents. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, this, this guy, um, and Beaky will make the point later that even, even Frau Houston here recognized later in life that he had, he had probably been overly harsh with his congregation. He right. had been overly contentious with his fellow ministers. Um, and, and there's, we'll talk about it, but there was some really beautiful, sounds like some really beautiful Christian reconciliation that happened after some of these controversies. But Frelhusen, one thing I really respect about him, you know, most people know this about me, like I'm willing to go to the mat. Like I'll throw down if I think that that something is important. Uh, things in theology, especially, but like even even in like my work life, like I sometimes have to bite my tongue at work because if I don't, I'll get myself in trouble because I'll fight for what I think is right, even if it doesn't even matter all that much. Sometimes things that are not all that important, but I think that I'm right about, I'll fight for. My wife will tell you that that's true. And um, he would he he went to the mat for the things he thought was true. And this right. is what I think is interesting is what, what we're seeing now 
you know, I did a course in uh, English and American Puritanism when I was in uh, seminary. And so I did a course on Jonathan Edwards specifically, and then I did a course specifically on English Puritanism. And he, this guy was a major influence on Jonathan Edwards. But right. the, the controversy that he has going on in his church related to the Lord's Supper and with uncon- how do you handle uh, unconverted Christians in your midst? How do you handle unregenerate members of the visible church? in relation to the sacrament, in relation to church discipline. How do you handle that? That's the same thing that ultimately got Jonathan Edwards kicked out of his own pulpit. So there's a lot of things going on in the new world. Uh, you know, the, the English settlers in many ways were the same or similar to the uh, the Dutch settlers in that there was, there was Christianity, but there was also a lot of carnal worldly right. living because the main oversight of the church in the continent was absent. Right. You had these country preachers who who had very limited ability to travel. And so they had oversight over several churches, usually, or an area of churches. But they weren't able to really manage those churches pastorally the way that a really centralized state established um, church could in England or in the Netherlands or in Germany. You just didn't have that in the new world. So he got into this controversy where he was saying, well, no, if you're going to come to the Lord's Supper, if you're going to come to the table, then you need to actually be a converted Christian. And in order for you to be a converted Christian, we need to see some evidence that you are a converted Christian, which means you need to be living a holy life. And so he got into a lot of hot water by making that distinction and and not so much by making that distinction, but by holding and enforcing that distinction is what really got him into trouble. I think that's the thing that we ought to ask ourselves is, as we understand Beaky's interpretation of him, as he expresses us to him in this chapter, how much did Freeling Husa get it right? So it's clear that he was in a community that showed more interest in like improving their economic condition than their spiritual growth. Right. And there's this wonderful quote that he references of religion consisted of the mere formal pursuit of the routine duty. And to me, that sounds so wonderfully or maybe condemningly contemporary. Yeah. And I think this is the hard thing is like for somebody with a strong personality like this, how much are we chalking it up to? Well, this is maybe overzealousness versus no, he got it right. Yeah. That the preaching that he brings to his people is he starts with a place that there is a scarcity of those who are saved and the priority of internal motives that affect eternal external observance need to be represented in actual behavior. Did he get that mostly right? And I think that if you found his personality in the church today, There'd be a lot of people that would bring complaint against him because he's being too hard and too harsh. But the question is, is he right? And how right is he? And I think that there's the challenge that we're supposed to receive from this chapter is that there is a purging and a necessary amount of, I would say, like personal reflection that should happen for all Christians, because to some degree or another, we all would fall under conviction of this kind of preaching. And I don't think we hear this kind of preaching much these days. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you and I have been vocal about our concerns and frustrations with the Lordship Salvation um, yes. movement. And, and you know, if I had to choose to side with somebody in uh, the Lordship controversy between MacArthur and um, whoever the other guy was, um, you know, the Lordship position versus the non-Lordship position. If I had to choose, I'd say neither, right? There, there's there's a third position that most people don't talk about. But if there right. were only the two positions, I'm going to go with MacArthur's position every single time, right? I'm going to go with the position that says uh, that Jesus changes people. 
and if you're not changed, then, then you don't have a claim to Jesus, right? I'm going to go with that position every time, as much as I disagree with it. And, and men like Mike Horton, who are actively speaking against some of these issues in the day, uh, they would say the same thing. And, and Frauhausen here really is kind. This is one of those things that I just think is really funny is, you know, the Lordship salvation controversy was like this huge deal. Like it was this big thing. And everybody thought it was like, oh my goodness, this is the biggest thing in the world. It wasn't new, right? The, the, the Lordship salvation controversy was basically happening in the new world in the 1600s, right? Jonathan Edwards was dealing with the same thing in his congregation. Uh, Frau Husen here is dealing with the same thing in his congregation and his, his four congregations. He, he pastored is people who thought that an intellectual knowledge of the doctrines of grace or the doctrines of the scriptures or whichever doctrines you're talking about, an intellectual knowledge was sufficient to bring someone into a saving union with Christ. And, and on one level, you and I want to say, yes, it is. That's, that's the beauty of the gospel is that a a faith commitment, a true genuine faith is the only instrument is the alone instrument by which we receive justification and sanctification, right? We're justified by grace through faith. We're sanctified by grace through faith. It's all the work of the Holy spirit. It's not the work of man in any sense, but those changes bring about changes. And so this controversy wasn't new in the nineties with MacArthur. It wasn't, it wasn't new. It wasn't new when Frauhausen was dealing with it, but at the same time, you know, this is, he, he was kind of the Paul washer of his day, right? Right. He was kind of the guy that was, that was saying to his congregation, I don't know why you're clapping. I'm talking about you. And that (laughs) just like that has gotten Paul washer into a little bit of hot water in some ways. It got Frauhausen into a lot of hot water as well. It got Edwards. We'll talk about Edwards more when we get to his chapter next week or next time. It got Edwards in a lot of hot water too. And just a little Presbyterian side note here. Um, I think actually the outcome between what happened with Frozen and what happened with Edwards and the fact that there's so many parallels and Edwards got kicked out of his pulpit and Frozen didn't, I actually think that speaks to the strength of a Presbyterian or a Dutch form of church government in that Edwards had nobody to appeal to. Edwards had nobody to go to to say, my congregation is really treating me unfairly here. Sure. It was, he was at the entirely at the mercy of his congregation. And so his enemies in the region were able to rally all of this, uh, all of this against him. Well, Frelhusen had enemies in his region that were very parallel to what went on with Edwards, but he had a consistory in Amsterdam that he could appeal to. He could make his case and they were able to say, well, you were wrong in a few areas. You, you shouldn't have said this. You shouldn't have done this, but your theology is right. So we're going to, we're going to help you. We're going to help you mitigate and and we're going to come to some sort of reconciliation between you and these other pastors in your area. Right. You know what that's like? This is going to be super nerdy is so talk about church government for just a second is that's basically like the Federal Reserve, in yeah. the, sense, the Federal Reserve Bank, which is the Bank of the United States, in the sense that like they will help out an institution that is a solid institution, but it merely needs short term funding for various purposes because right. people think for whatever reason that it's not. So that, that government coming in and stepping in and supporting is super important. And I, I totally agree with that. I can understand that and appreciate that. I think where we get like an amazing amount of parallel, and I think the Paul Washer comparison is helpful and also slightly entertaining and hilarious <laughs> just because I think that probably they were maybe very much alike in personality. Like I'm, yeah. just, I'm just picturing Paul Washer and Phelan who's in like interacting at a future point in heaven and just being like, it's you, it's you like that. It basically, it's like, I don't know memes very well, but I feel like yeah. it's that meme of like the double Spider-Man. Yeah. Yeah. That's like, a, I'm very proud of you, brother. <laughs> 
Thank you. I appreciate that. I'm learning. I'm trying You're to learning. grow and trying to mature. But it feels like they're saying much the same thing. Yeah. But I think where I really, my heart connects with, with the style and the emphasis of his preaching is that his attention, and Beaky notes this, was like focused on what he called like these quote unquote letter learned Christians. Yeah. Because he felt they were in danger as like the almost Christians, not far from the kingdom of God, but they walked like Christians and they talked like Christians, but they did not possess a new birth. And I think that's actually a really damning statement. Is like, how far can we come close to that line of possessing a new birth, but not really have it and deceive ourselves? Because even as like reformed people, it's wonderful to learn. And when we learn something new that opens up like a new expanse of knowledge to us, it can feel like that's a spiritual experience, but it may not be. Yeah. And so I think that that's a lot of what he's approaching here is that this idea that he's preaching experientially and the Christian is an experiential person. That is to say like a convert had to know how he possessed, or he, sorry, how he passed from death to life it was expected to be able to relate what God had done for his soul. And I think I take that as like a personal challenge. Like, and as I'm explaining my faith to others, can I express that in a way that's not just like straight textbook, but where the textbook is influencing and is cohesive with my feelings and my understanding of what God has actually done in my life as it's been expressed in the grand story arc of the scriptures. Yeah. And so I think this is why he's so, so polarizing is like, I don't know what his like Britney Spears equivalent was when he <laughs> preached, but certainly it was there. Like certainly he was laying it down for people enough where like he had to put like a warning on the back of his ride to say like, don't come at me. Like yeah. this is who I am. And I'm very committed to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the community in which I serve is, is a community that is, made of people that think they're Christians, but they're not. And this goes back to something that I think Beaky mentioned, like maybe in the opening chapter or the first few chapters where he spoke about discriminatory preaching yeah, and the need and the imperative part that discriminatory preaching praise in reformed theology. And I think for the first time, since we're seeing all of these examples of preachers, here's one where Beaky is really saying, if you want to see discriminatory preaching, maybe almost to an extreme, here it is out in front of you. And I've been juxtaposing that against like the preachers that I hear in the, in kind of the contemporary era and saying, do we need more of this? Have yeah. we moved so far away from it that people aren't willing to challenge and kind of the Paul Washer way, at least, like at least he was willing to challenge that. And so I think we can say, well, we just need to understand or evaluate what he means, but we need to get the heart of the issue. I don't think what he was saying was necessarily wrong. And we talked about that, but it's this idea of, do we need a greater sense of processing whether or not we are in the faith as Paul challenges us. Yeah. 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 I was going to make the same point actually, is that, you know, this, this discriminatory preaching, it's not something we see much in our era, um, to be honest with you. And, you know, it's, it's, um, my criticism of Paul Washer is that he's not doing discriminatory preaching in most, in, in the cases we've looked at, right. That, as we said, when we kind of assessed one of his sermons, small sample, right? In a very particular circumstance, got it. Like all those disclaimers, we love our disclaimers. total deference to him. But the, that sermon, the shocking youth message sermon, is an example of non-discriminatory preaching. He right. came into a a group of people, and, and ironically, like it's the same thing Fellhusen does, right? He comes into a group of people, he assumes most of them are unconverted, and he preaches accordingly. Well. That's fine if you're right and most of your listeners are unconverted. But again, going back to what I said, like there's a difference between evangelism 
uh, evangelism missions where you're, you're intentionally trying to convert the unconverted and gospel ministry to those you believe are converted. You should preach right. the gospel to both and you should preach the law to both. The law and the gospel is necessary for both parties. But the, the, the difference is that when you preach to a congregation, if the sheep walk away feeling being made to believe they're goats, which is what I believe happens to most people when they listen to a Paul Washington, that's why you hear people talking about questioning whether they're really saved or not. I don't think that's a good thing. If you're, if your preaching is causing Christians to genuinely wonder whether or not they're saved, that's not a good thing on a regular basis. Right. Um, that said, if your preaching is call, causing Christians who are unconverted to wonder if they're saved and become converted, right. that's good. And that's where the brilliance of a good yes. discriminatory preacher comes in is that th like someone like William Perkins, for example, who we talked about has, has a similar kind of like um, taxonomy of listeners in the art of prophesying. So one of the things that Beaky is actually a little bit critical at the end of this chapter of is that Frelhusen actually has two too many different categories. You know, he has all these different categories for different kinds of listeners, different kinds of auditors. And he says, that's not that we don't really see all those categories in the Bible. He's, he's critical of that. But Perkins actually does the same thing. He has several different kinds of Christians and non-Christians that may be listening to a sermon. And the brilliance of a good discriminatory preacher is that they're able to, within the single sermon, they're able to preach the law and the gospel in a way that actually approaches and addresses each person, each type of listener in a way that's appropriate to their category. Right. So if you were to take Paul Washer's shocking youth message and you were to add a component where instead of beating on people and telling them they're not Christians, he actually took time to speak to the backsliding Christians who really were Christians but needed to be called to a, a deeper level of holiness and a further commitment to the holiness of God. Yes. That would, and that, that's where, like, you know, when you think of like R.C. Sproul, right? I love R.C. Sproul. And one of his most significant contributions to the, the area of Reformed theology is a focus on the holiness of God. And what, what I found when I listened to him talk and preach about the holiness of God, if I was not a Christian, that would be terrifying to me. Right. If I, if I believe that what he was saying was true and I wasn't a Christian, that would be absolutely, utterly terrifying to me. As a Christian, it's very heavy. It's weighty on me, but I'm never afraid because Christ is my holiness. And so I need to step into and live that holiness out that Christ has already bought for me, has already purchased and is already creating in my life. I need to step into that and live that out consistently, but I don't right. need to become holy or to somehow become a Christian because I already am. So I, I think that's, that's one of the areas that we have to look at and say, you know, good discriminatory preaching makes those distinctions and discriminates between those parties, but doesn't treat an entire group of people as though they all fit into one or the other category. Yeah, you're right. What's interesting is in this chapter, he talks, I think, about like five different categories yeah. that were mentioned there of like the, those that might be in his congregation. And I think the the critique against that is that it's just too many. Like the Bible basically says those who are believers and those who are not. And so there's part of me that, of course, like gives assent to that and says, you're right. That makes sense. And yet at the same time, like the thing is, I think sometimes let's, let's just say by the power of the Holy Spirit, presuming, of course, that the Holy Spirit is involved, of course, in all kind of changing here that sometimes we need the shocking language to get us into a place where we're willing to realize, understand what's being said. Because the problem is, 
if you're part of the unbeliever, then I think it's easy to say like, yeah, I just don't, I'm not, I'm not comporting with any of this. Like, no, this makes sense to me. I'm not down with it all. all, uh, Nothing whatsoever. For those that I would say that are completely transformed, regenerated, they're hearing the message and saying, yes, of course, like all of this makes complete sense to me. And I'm willing to sink my life into it. It's this middle group, this group that's saying like, no, 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 I am the Christian. I'm exactly what you're talking about, but is not according to like, I think like Frailhusen's understanding, there's no self-examination. There's no marks of grace. There is no sense that the fruit of the spirit is actually present in our lives. How do you get to this group and say, you're not who you think you are? Right. And, and so I don't know, like there is, we need to have this kind of language, kind of emphasis that is hard, that the edge cuts very distinctly, very cleanly and painfully almost. And yet at the same time, of course, we want to bristle against that because it seems like it's ungracious. And like, I, I don't think, you know, only Jesus himself did that very well. You know, you look at the example of him at, with the uh, Samaritan woman at the well, where you have the sense that he is the only one there is able to ask questions and to probe and to get a sense of like conviction that we as human beings are really unable to do, even though we want to bring that yeah. to bear in our conversations, in our preaching, we find that usually what happens is we swing the pendulum one way too far in either direction. And so we end up in extremes. Yeah. But I think that this is what makes him such an interesting character is that, I, and this is what I love about how Beaky kind of presents him. He says, and sometimes I think he's kind of giving the impression that he's praising him. And other times he's saying, well, there are certainly many things here that were flawed about his character. And that is definitely true of me. You know, like I, I want to be in the extreme sometimes because I want to come with the full force of the truth of the gospel and the truth of God's word, such that it transforms and it cuts people. And yet at the same time, there's, I certainly recognize that I go too far and I'm not sure that as best I try to discern it as God is maturing me, that it's hard for me to distinguish at times where that line is because there is a line, but it's very nuanced. And it's also by conversation, by experience, by person. But I love that he was just sold out and committed. Like, I love that he was John McClane. Yeah. And I love that he was willing to get after it. And probably, if I'm totally candid, I need to get after it more and be willing to express that in a more profound way, in a more upfront way, and let kind of the critique and the criticism and the anger against me fall as it as it may, like against the sides and let it roll off as apparently he did with like the bumper sticker that was on his sleigh. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm just saying, um, I just looked up a picture of Frelison and I got to <laughs> oh, really? admit, I think that he probably <laughs> could play John McClane in a movie. Wait, now I got to look it up. How'd you, you just, he's Google a very it? severe, yeah, very severe looking person. <laughs> so I think, yeah, like maybe someone should make a little meme of his face it actually looks like there might be photographs of him. That can't be right. Get out. Serious? Ah. Maybe yeah, this oh. is a different Theodore Felhusen. Oh, wow. Yeah, I um, think that's a different Theodore. I think Felhusen. I think it is. But either way, all of them, all the lineage is pretty stark. Yeah. <laughs> actually, you know what? I don't know. This is great podcasting, folks. Just listen to me and Jesse debate Describe over pictures. photos on the internet yeah so but <laughs> i just say that to say like john mcclain is an admirable character for what he is doing right yes and right i don't know That's much about thing. i don't know much about die hard but what i do know is basically the idea behind die hard is that <laughs> it's this cop who finds himself in this situation and the only option is to win or die 
Like that's that's the those are the outcomes. Sure. Either he's going to beat all the bad guys or he's going to get killed by the bad guys. And yeah, so he's called it's called Die too. Hard because he's hard to kill. Like he dies hard. Right. But like that's the that's the <laughs> preaching of Frohosen, right? He was yes. willing to go to the mat, he was willing to push and push and push and push and push and fight and fight and fight and his opponents were either going to have to take him out or they were going to have to give up. And those were the yes. two options. Yep. And I think, you know, when I think about our modern world and the state of our world, it, it's funny because the more things change, the more they stay the same, right? The, this I'm going to read this little paragraph um, from Frau Husen. And it's funny because I could never imagine a, um, imagine a preacher in our world um, preaching this way and not, not have people basically say, like, this guy should be taken out of his pulpit. Uh, Wait, before you say this, before yes. you read this, can I, can I ask for those who haven't read this chapter, is, is the word whore referenced several times in this passage? <laughs> it is. Yes, it is. So I knew exactly where you're going, but this, this proves your point, right? So I want people to be ready for like, this is language that you might not expect coming from the pulpit, but here's somebody that's about to deliver it to you. I think with the full weight and the, uh, the appropriate like nature of like the discourse of preaching. Yeah. And, and this is, um, this is particularly apropos in our current context, right? Because the, the context of this, this sermon that he's preaching is he's using uh, the lesson of an earthquake. He's using the natural yes. evil in the world to demonstrate God's displeasure with sin. And here's how he applies this to his congregation, right? This isn't, this isn't him preaching to a bunch of people who claim not to be Christians. This is his congregation whom he is ministering to. He says, quote, Come here, you careless ones, at ease in sin, you carnal and earthly-minded ones, you unchaste whoremongers and adulterers, you proud, haughty men and women, you seekers after pleasure, you drunkards, gamblers, disobedient, and wicked rejecters of the gospel, you hypocrites and dissemblers. How do you think the Lord will deal with you? Be filled with terror, you impure swine, adulterers and whoremongers. Without true repentance, you will live with the impure devils. All who burn in their vile lusts will be cast into a fire that is hotter than that of Sodom and Gomorrah. And so you, you read that and I read that and I kind of set my book down. And I was like, dang, like, <laughs> right. I, you know, this clip of Matt Chandler, and, and I, I don't think this was appropriate, but there's this clip of Matt Chandler that recently surfaced. That's an old clip. So it's hard to know whether this represents his current state of mind and his current behavior or not, but I'm not 100% sure it doesn't. But either way, there's this clip that surfaced where he was addressing some sort of group of leaders. Like they were, it was some sort of, some sort of meeting where he was addressing a group of like community leaders or something like that. And he was talking about how he had, he had sent out an email about how they were going to do this new thing where people were going to be able to tweet questions to him. And then after the sermon, he would answer them. And he got this snarky anonymous result back and he stops in the meeting and he goes, you know what? We are, we are not above reproach or above criticism in any area, but you sign your name, you coward, you know, good waste of space, nothing. You sign your name. Right. And he's angry. Like you can tell he is mad. And my initial response to that was like, that's a disqualifying sin right there. Like you don't address your congregation like that. Right. Well, part of the problem was that he wasn't addressing his congregation. He wasn't talking to his congregation. He was talking about his congregation. So I think that's a problem. That's a different context, but that is no more or less strong. And in fact, it's probably less strong than the language that Frohusen yes. is using here. 
the difference I think, as I mentioned, is this is Felhusen addressing his congregation from the pulpit, right? He's taking authority over them. He's addressing them as a prophet, right? The prophets say some pretty mean and nasty things, right? This is prophetic language. So uh, I just say that to say, we need to maybe look at our, our ministers who use some strong language. I don't mean like cursing and, and swearing. Like, I don't think that's appropriate from the pulpit, but use strong and pointed language and name sins and sinners for what they are. We need to look at that and maybe understand that that's probably a little closer to prophetic preaching than some of the stuff that we see. Right. Or at least then we might think, because we've talked before about the fact that I think any person who has been a part of the church for any length of time would recognize that there are tares and wheat in the congregation. Like we don't, de- we don't debate that. In some respects, the question is, how strongly is the pastor going to recognize that himself from the pulpit? Right. And that's exactly what we have here. And we should presume in deference to him that he's doing this in such a way that he is praying through everything he's preaching, just like we all, we've talked about all along. And so there is a sensitivity, a real experiential sensitivity to the needs of his congregation. And so because of that, he's preaching in this way. But nonetheless... When you read that, it comes off as powerful. Like, I mean, can you imagine sitting in the midst of that and not just feeling like overwhelmed, run over with awkwardness and the power of what's being said there? Yeah. Yeah. And I think this is where, and I think that Beaky, I don't think he, he doesn't straight out say this, but I think he kind of alludes to this is Frelhusen goes too far. I think he, he treats his congregation um, and, and you know, I, I don't know, maybe he's right about his, his own particular congregation. So right. from a historical perspective, I don't know that we can answer the question as whether this was wise or not. He may very well have been speaking to a group of people that are unregenerate, unregenerate, and this may have been entirely appropriate. But I think most of the time when a pastor goes this direction, they treat their entire congregation as unregenerates. And I'm not sure in most contexts that that is warranted. And and here's the kicker. I, I realize I like that phrase a lot lately. Here's the kicker is <laughs> you can make the same error the other direction and still of fail course. at discriminating preaching by never calling your congregation to repentance, by never addressing the fact that there may be those who are unconverted in your midst and likely are in a, a congregation of any decent size. You exactly. know, like we have a congregation of 17 of, of 12 people. It's very possible for my pastor to know every person in depth and to be accurately discerning the state of their soul as far as is possible by any man in a congregation of 50, even 50 people. That's that's likely not the case. And so when you get some of these megachurch pastors uh, that never, ever address the fact that there are probably unbelievers in their midst and never proclaim evangelistically the gospel to them. That's where you run into a problem. So I think there's a balance that has to be struck. And I think Beaky makes that point here. And he's he's using him as an example of someone who who is a discriminatory preacher, but maybe doesn't do it as well as he could have. And I haven't read the next chapter. I'm going to guess that in the next chapter, he's going to continue that thread. Because when I look at the figures in the next chapter, Edwards is one of them. He's going to continue this thread and perhaps show us a little bit, a little bit of a better way to do it. Right. And yet we're definitely going to acknowledge at the same time, he was a forerunner and a progenitor of the Great Awakening yep. in this country. And so there's something yet that in the midst of all this, in the imperfection that, of course, God was working out. And so there's, I think, a great source of comfort in all that. It, it's yeah. just what an amazing character study. I, I was really just blown away by who this guy was. And I mean, I can't wait to interact with him because I really do feel like he is the perfect embodiment of like reformed theological John McLean. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, Jesse, I think that's as good a place to end it. So until next time, yippee ki honor everyone. <laughs> Love the brotherhood. <laughs> uh.